Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Thursday, December 14th. We want to catch up on and dig into some big developments at the Supreme Court in recent days. We've got CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Hoding, a former New Jersey and federal prosecutor, to help us go beyond the headlines on the following. The court has accepted its biggest abortion rights case since the Dobbs decision overturned Roe versus Wade. It's about how easily people should be allowed to get the abortion pill Mifepristone. Remember, most abortions, an actual majority of abortions these days in the United States are through medication, not surgery. Depending on how the court rules, this could also be the first version of a national limit on abortion rights, limiting access even in the current legal states. Obviously, all these cases have political implications for the presidential and congressional elections next year, too. So let's dig in with Ellie Honig, senior legal analyst for CNN, a former New Jersey and federal prosecutor. He also hosts the podcast from CAFE called Up Against the Mob, and is he is the author of the books, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department, and his latest, which came out earlier this year, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. He may have to update that book, depending on what the Supreme Court does. Ellie, always good of you to give us some time. Welcome back to WNYC. Hey, Brian. Glad to be with you. You know, I'm actually pleased to report that a lot of what I say in that book, which came out almost a year ago, has come to pass, including uh, towards the end, I say, watch this immunity question. This is going to be a big darn deal in the Trump cases. But I will say so much. Here's how much has gone down in the last three days or so. Um, without giving away any, too many insider trade secrets at CNN, there are certain segments that we pre-tape for New Year's morning, right, on the theory that not that many people are going to be available for New Year's uh-huh. morning. So I had pre-taped a segment ab- about here's the five biggest things that happened in the law this year and the five biggest things to watch in 2024. Um, just this morning, I crossed emails with the producer saying, we're going to need to reshoot that. Oh, boy. Because yeah. several big things have happened just in the last couple of days that have just change what we're watching and change the calendar moving forward. Yep, and that's why we're doing this segment. And let's do some basics first. If the anti-abortion rights side wins, this would not ban Mifepristone outright. An attempt to do that by the same conservative Christian group has already failed in the courts, but it would make it harder to get Mifepristone in some very specific way. So can you remind us of what kinds of access are at stake? Yeah, exactly right. And originally, it's important to note, Brian, when this case went to the district court, the federal uh, trial court in Texas, that judge actually ruled Mifepristone illegally approved by FDA off the market. But that was immediately put on hold. The Court of Appeals then said, we're not going to go that far, but we are going to scale back some of the expansions in the way that women can get access to this medicine. For example, can they get it through the mail? Or do they have to make sort of, you know, direct appearances with a doctor? Um, There's also uh, questions about timing. When can a woman, how early or late in the pregnancy can a woman get mifepristone? So the Supreme Court's going to have to rule on those expansions or will they roll back those expansions of mifepristone? And the legal underpinning here 
it's maybe somewhat of a pretext, but the legal basis for this is the argument is the FDA didn't go through the proper review process, A, when they approved mifepristone to begin with in 2000, and then when they subsequently expanded access a couple of times. So again, it's important. You point out an important distinction here. Mifepristone is not going to disappear off the markets, but access to it could be restricted in terms of do you have to visit with a doctor? Can it be in person? Does it have to be in person or can it be over telemedicine? What's the timing like? And other access issues. Right, like uh, delivery by mail. The decision to allow prescriptions via telehealth came in 2016. Delivery by mail was allowed in 2021. Is it clear to you who made those decisions and why? Well, those were expansions issued by the FDA. The FDA approved mifepristone, I think it was in 2000. And then from time to time, the FDA will, in any case, will uh, consider scaling back or expanding access. And so those are sort of revisions made by the FDA, expansions made by the FDA itself. And now let's talk about what the anti-abortion rights plaintiffs are arguing. I'm reading here from an NBC News story on this case. It says the claim is that the post-2016 FDA decisions, both the telehealth and the by mail, and how long in a pregnancy uh, people could get mifepristone, it's now up to 10 weeks, should be put on hold because the moves, quote, were taken without sufficient consideration of the effects those changes would have on patients. That's in the filing. We're taken without sufficient consideration of the effects those changes would have on patients. So, Ellie, that sounds like the plaintiffs want these justices trained in the law to second-guess the FDA's medical experts on how they assess the effects of something on patients. Yes? Well, that's exactly right, and many years later, right? I mean, these these revisions were made in 2016, 2019, 2021, and now in 2023. And by the way, originally they said back in 2000, two decades plus ago, the proper procedures were not followed. The argument they're making, and I'm oversimplifying a bit here, is that the, the FDA did not take into account the emotional, the mental factors that go into using this drug. But you're right. I mean, look, the FDA, the people who review this at the FDA, not that I believe federal agencies are infallible or should be all powerful. I do believe there should be limits. But you're talking about doctors and medical experts who made this decision. And now they're asking judges, very few, if any of whom are doctors or medical experts, to say, no, you didn't do this right. Um, This happens sometimes. People challenge agency promulgation of rules. But this seems to be pretty deep in the weeds and, yeah, essentially is seeking to substitute the judgment of a bunch of lawyers in robes for a bunch of doctors and medical experts. Is there a history of the court doing that kind of second guessing? Yeah, I mean, the court does overturn agency determinations from time to time. But the courts, it's important to understand, the courts are not supposed to go in there and say, well, we don't agree with your conclusion. The courts are supposed to look at process. Did you follow the correct processes? Did you, for example, serve public notice of this of, of this pending action? Did you take public comments in the way you're required to under administrative law? It's all these sort of nuanced administrative processes. And the way it's supposed to work is you the courts can overturn administrative action if they used a flawed process. But courts are not mm. supposed to come in and go, well, we disagree or our experts disagree with your experts. So when you cited mental health effects as something that they said the FDA didn't uh, sufficiently take into account, it sounds like you don't think we're going to see arguments on 
well, there are traumatic grief reactions uh, to abortions by some people that they didn't take into account versus there's a lot of emotional relief that people feel when they get abortions that end unwanted pregnancies. They're not going to get that granular about it. That's interesting. I think I think, well, the gist of the argument, the 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 pro-life, the anti-abortion groups is going to be, of course, the former. It's going to be the traumatic effects. I wonder whether there will be I mean, certainly they're not going to argue for whatever positive emotional effects there might be. But I wonder if the other side that's that's what I'd argue. Yeah. 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 Well, and so maybe they will get that granular. And and we should say this case is being brought by doctors affiliated with a conservative Christian legal group called Alliance Defending Freedom. And by the way, this is kind of an aside, Ellie, but don't you love those names? They oh. always have names like that. Alliance <laughs> Defending Freedom. Well, that sounds I, like a good thing, but then you see they're really the alliance to create a theocracy or something like that. Right. Uh, I guess the law can't stop people from taking on vague, misleading names. We, we, someone needs to have like a game show where you read off some of these, you know, the Justice Fund. And it's like, what is that? What are they? I mean, they could be for the most extreme thing ever. They could be for something that everyone agrees on. But yeah, the, these names are these generic names. Like there's some wild ones out there when you actually dig into what they do. They are they try to espouse the most uncontroversial, broadest flag-waving principles. And then sometimes when you dig in, they're quite extreme either way. And I see the case could get dismissed because the alliance defending freedom and the doctors affiliated with them might not have standing. What's the standing argument? Standing means, is this a person who's been harmed? Is this a person who has the legal right to bring a lawsuit? And I guess the question here, the, the, the issue here is, really, doctors, and this is a medical group, aren't the people who are harmed by this, if anybody. Um, And so you have to, you know, so a lot of times what plaintiffs groups will do is sort of round up all different types of plaintiffs, maybe get a woman who has been through an abortion or somebody like that or somebody who may in the future. I don't know how you would do that exactly. But yes, there is a procedural question, a standing question. And it's it's a way that the district, the, the Supreme Court or any federal court can, I guess you could say duck a case, but avoid getting to the merits um, this actually happened quite a bit in the Trump election lawsuit. They lost a lot of claims on this is a person who doesn't have standing. This is not a person hmm. who was or stands to be actually harmed by the actions here. And you can see an argument that, well, a group of doctors doesn't really have an interest, doesn't doesn't sustain a cognizable type of harm uh-huh. from whatever the substance is of these abortion regulations. Um, is it fair to say... This would be the first national abortion ban imposed by the court rather than just turning those rights back to each state or to Congress, as I think the court said they were doing in the Dobbs decision. Right. So if whatever the Supreme Court's ruling here will have national implications, they are one thing that is not on the table is doing what they did in Dobbs, which is say, we're kicking it back to the states. We're going to let every state decide for itself. This is there. There's no outcome here where they're going to say, well, we're going to leave mefepristone up to each state individually. This is going to have national sweep and either the expansions that the FDA adopted uh, in 16 and, and 19 and 21, either they're going to be nationwide applicable or they're going to be struck down altogether. So you're right. There is a, a different implementation of this than in what we saw in Dobbs. Jim in Spring Lake, New Jersey, has uh, a question about that name, Alliance for Freedom. (laughs) So, Jim, go for it. You're on WNYC. 
Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I actually was, I jumped when I heard you guys laughing about this. Uh, the, you know, this is, these names of these kinds of groups, this is the Machiavellian work of, like, Frank Luntz, who was, you know, the, the wordsmith for the right for decades. And he's got his best-selling book, Words That Work. You know, these are, they, it starts with the names of organizations like this, where you say, wow, who would be against that? Yeah. Exactly. And it's how they begin to grab a foothold in, uh, in the zeitgeist on critical social, economic, and political issues. And Absolutely I don't know if there's right. a more critical one for, for the, you know, the, the women of our country uh, than the issue that you're talking about right now. So we can't laugh this off. It's really important that we, those of us uh, who are progressives, those on the left, that we begin to fight nonviolently, fire with fire. We can't laugh off the way that they strategize because they're extremely effective. They're winning, and they're winning on this fight. And we have to challenge it at, at every point. Absolutely. And I don't want laughing at the absurdity to be mistaken uh, for diminishing uh, the importance of taking on misleading names like those. And, Ellie, I know you're a legal analyst, not a political yeah. analyst. I think he's right to trace it back to some degree to the Republican political strategist Frank Luntz. And, and I can't think off the top of my head, maybe this is wrong or unfair, but I can't think off the top of my head of a lot of similar groups like that on the left with those kinds of names. I don't know if you can, but again, I know this might not be in your portfolio. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to think about sort of in the legal world. I mean, I think this is a strategy. I'll take your word for it uh, on what the political origins of this are. I don't know that. But I mean, both sides definitely, and, and the caller is right, like it is a focused and I think effective political and messaging strategy to say, let's choose a name that nobody could quarrel with. Who could be against Americans for justice or, or you know, anything like that. Um, but but really, you know, you, you do have to do your digging. And again, to the caller's point, you do have to do your research into who exactly is this group. I tell my students this. I teach undergraduates at Rutgers here in New Jersey. And I say, when you're citing a source, don't just glance at the name of the entity. You have to dig into who is this group. I mean, same thing with with the names of certain media outlets, right? They sound sort of neutral, and you, you dig in, and you go, whoa, okay, all right. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think we do have to be careful and cognizant of those labels. Here's a legal question from a listener via text message. They write, there is not enough talk about the religious aspect regarding abortion. The First Amendment should protect America from zealots trying to enforce their religious will over the majority of Americans. So, Ellie, I think I've asked you this question before because this is actually something I bring up a lot. Why aren't there First Amendment religious liberty, to use a phrase from the right, religious liberty cases um, that defend a woman's right to choose an abortion because different, even major religions in the United States have different opinions on when life begins. So that's interesting. So the theory would be that a person is protected under the First Amendment, the right to free exercise of religion we're talking about now to right. say, well, in my religion, life begins at whatever point, and therefore I'm free to act on that. Is that is that the gist of the argument? Yeah, I mean, and we're talking about major American religions. Like, I grew up in Reform Judaism, which has a pro-choice position, and right. 
you know, with this Alliance for Defending Freedom, which I gather is a conservative Christian group per se, and I believe Mike Johnson, the House Speaker, used to belong to this specific group. I think I've read that. Um, but uh, but yeah, they want to impose—I mean, one version of what's happening here is they want to impose their religious beliefs on those of Reformed Jews— and many other Christians, too, who uh, believe that um, personhood does not begin at conception. Yeah, but wouldn't the argument be, though, that in when an individual is exercising his religion, th- this doesn't get in the way of that. If you choose to terminate, uh, th- that's not a religious exercise, I don't think. It, it, you know what I mean? It may be for or against your religious beliefs if what other people are doing, but it doesn't stop an individual from doing what they, well, what, what but they the, want. But the sure. law, a law that outlaws abortion bans an individual from exercising that right. Um, and based on really whatever they argue in court, based really on a lot of conservative religionists attempt to impose their religion on civil law. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure I've seen that argument made in the courts specifically. Um, it's certainly not the arguments being made in the Mephipristone case. Um, that's interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd have to chew on that one a little bit. Yeah, okay. I, I, I wonder if it's been made before. I don't know. Yeah, it's one that I wonder why it hasn't been yeah. made before and gotten to the Supreme Court on that basis. But all right, that's not what they're looking at now. So let's move on. Andrew in Dix Hills. You're on WNYC. Hello, Andrew. Hi. Um, my question is, if the Supreme Court allows um, the person to be uh, accessible nationwide, what does that mean for people who use it in states where abortion is illegal? Um, are just surgical abortions banned, or is use of person also banned? And if it is used, would they be charged with a criminal offense? Yeah. This, this is a really good question. There, there's so much gray area right now happening in the wake of Dobbs. I actually thought there would be more. Uh, we saw another example of this with, the, with the, the really unfortunate case out of Texas where a woman wanted to get an abortion uh, because um, her, life, her, her health was in danger under the statute. At first, she was given permission by a court. Then the Texas Supreme Court said no. Then she just went to another state. But this is a great question. There are states where it's illegal to perform or assist in an abortion, can a doctor or an individual order mefepristone into those states? I mean, the answer is it could violate those states' laws. It's possible that it could. And then the question will be, what would the consequences be? I mean, I I don't know that someone would get sued, but could there be criminal prosecution? I mean, in states where abortion is illegal, it could be a crime to assist in giving an abortion. So doctors, I think there's a real deterrent, a chilling effect here on a doctor. If you're a doctor in a state that's outlawed abortion or outlawed it after a certain amount of time and you order mifepristone, I, I do think that there is a risk, whether mifepristone, you know, assuming mifepristone remains available, I do think there's a risk. And I think I'd be worried about that if I was in that position that, well, I get that mifepristone is available, but my state's law do not allow someone to assist in an abortion. So the caller is exactly right. That's a gray area. And there's some real tension and maybe even conflict there. Still on the name, Alliance Defending Freedom. Somebody texts an example from the left, People for the American Way, where right and left might disagree on what the American way is. That was the late Norman Lear's group. And another listener writes, a listener who's a Democrat writes, 
they, Republicans, are winning. Democrats need to be better at messaging. Everyone I know thinks the Dems are horrible at it and the Republicans take advantage of it. Before we move on, can you read any tea leaves that indicate how this Mifepristone case will go? Ooh, that's a great question. So again, I I think it's um it's interesting that I, I think it was unlikely that the Supreme Court would have said mifepristone off the market altogether. FDA failed back in two thousand when they initially approved it. I think that would have been a long shot because we're looking at more incremental changes. I give a little bit of a higher chance, but let's let's just play this out. I think it's safe to say the three liberals, uh, justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson will be in favor of you know the expanded availability of mifepristone. I think it's safe to say that Thomas Alito and Gorsuch will be in favor of the restrictions, right? So I think you've got three to three, which leaves us with Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett in the middle. Um, you know, boy, that's a tough one. I mean, Roberts likes to avoid dramatic opinions that will have sort of drastic political implications. We'll probably get into this with the Trump issues that we're coming up to. So it, I think it's, I guess I'm just, I can't make a prediction, but I can say I would narrow it down to two out of those three, whoever gets two out of Kavanaugh, Barrett and Roberts. And I should say Kavanaugh and Barrett have both from time to time surprised people and crossed over and joined with liberals. Not often, but it's happened uh, a couple times recently where Kavanaugh's joined with Roberts and given the liberals enough to get over the line. So that's not impossible. Ellie Honig, senior legal analyst for CNN, a former New Jersey and federal prosecutor, host of the podcast Up Against the Mob, and author of books including his latest, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Ellie, we appreciate all your time. Thank you so much. Great talking to you, Brian. Thanks very much. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.